God's Word in 2 Kings chapter 22, beginning in verse 1, reads, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkoth. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and walked in all the way of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the secretary to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord repairing the house, that is, to the carpenters and to the builders and the masons, and let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and he reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hokiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam the son of Shaphan and Akbor the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the secretary and Asiah the king's servant saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam and Akbor and Shaphan and Azziah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter. And they talked with her, and she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, and the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. But the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. Well, in the War of 1812, the U.S. ship captain, David Porter, was very skillful and captured many British whaling vessels. Once a ship was captured, he then had to put another man in charge of the ship. And Captain Porter had the man for the job, David Farragut. There was only one small problem to the captain of the captured ship. It was insulting that his ship was now commandeered by a 12-year-old. 
Farragut had joined the Navy when he was nine years old, and he did so well that by age 12, he'd risen to the rank of prize master, so that when a ship was overtaken, he was put in charge of it. What can a 12-year-old do? What should we expect them to do? What should we expect of teenagers? The youth about a year ago read a book with Brian Porthris entitled Do Hard Things. And in that book, the authors mentioned that the first time the word teenager was documented being used was in 1941 in Reader's Digest. Now, of course, teenagers have existed as long as someone was 13 to 19. They have existed. But the point was that this group of people known as teenagers was a new idea. For civilization before this, there were only two groups of people. Children and adults. There was no middle group between them. You were either physically mature or you were not physically mature. Once you moved into physical maturity, maturity in life was expected of you. But now we have an ever-expanding middle group in which people are physically mature and yet nothing is expected of them. Some even going, often men, into their 30s with no stable job, no hopes, no dreams, no goals, except beating that person online at the video game. And even younger, people are still doing stuff, but they're doing a lot of play. Yes, they go to school, but you know, school's only 180 days out of the year, and you only go for a third of the day, so only a quarter of the year is going to school. What should we expect the kids to do with the other three quarters of the year in their waking hours? What should they devote their time to? And this mindset, why has this grown? Well, it's grown because if you think before the Industrial Revolution, children would work at home with their parents. They would work on the farm. They would work in the house. Well, then when the Industrial Revolution came, oh, we can send these children to work in the factories. And sadly, they were often exploited and abused. And so we rightly, and we should give thanks for it, created child labor laws. That you can't have a five-year-old working on a machine that could chop off their arm. And that's a wonderful thing. But we've swung the pendulum so far to the other side that now children aren't even expected to do any work at home. I don't know what your homes are like, so hopefully I'm not attacking any of you, but I'm always surprised when a high school graduate says, yeah, I've never done a wash of laundry in my life. Well, I don't know how to make any food. Uh, and you're like, what do you do at home? Don't your parents expect you to help out? You're a mature person physically. You should be able to do these things. But perhaps a better question to ask is not so much what should a society expect, but what does God expect of an 8-year-old, a 12-year-old, a 16-year-old? When do God's two greatest commandments, love Him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, when do children need to start obeying those? When should they be expected to honor God? And this morning, I hope to show that honoring God with your life is not something that's in the future. Like, oh, when I'm married, when I have kids, that's when I need to start honoring God with my life. Today is the day for everyone to honor God with their life. And we see that with Josiah because Josiah leads his nation in spiritual reformation from a young age. If you have a bulletin, you can see on the back our outline first. In the first two verses, we're going to reflect on that he started young against the tide. Not from Alabama, though. Second, he was ambitious for God's glory, verses 3 through 10. And then third, he wept over losing God's favor, verses 11 through 20. But 
This all begins starting against the tide, starting young against the tide, verses 1 and 2. If you weren't here before, you could go back and read chapter 21, and you'll know that his grandfather, Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh, was a wicked king, one of the worst kings who has come. His father, Josiah's great-grandfather, Hezekiah, had brought the nation of Judah back to obeying God. He'd removed the high places. He'd gotten rid of false worship. His son, Manasseh, Josiah's grandfather, reverted the nation back. He brought back Baal. He brought back Asher. He brought back false worship. For 55 years, he reigned. And then for two years, his son Ammon reigned. And so, you would expect that when Josiah, after 57 years of ungodliness before him, comes to reign, that he will follow in their footsteps. Yet, though Josiah is only eight when he begins to reign, Though he had a family ancestry of doing what was wicked, it tells us that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. It says he did not turn to the right or to the left. And that's a quote, actually, from Deuteronomy 17.20, where Deuteronomy 17 is telling of an ideal king. And the very phrase it uses for this ideal king, it uses of Josiah. We're not going to turn there, but Second Chronicles 34 also tells of Josiah's life. And there it tells us that he started seeking after God at age 16. And at age 20, he began removing the idols from the land. So after 57 years of wicked reigning, probably few expected that Josiah would do what God wanted. But he still sought after God. Well, we were on our vacation. We got to go one day to the beach. And there we put our towels down went plunging into the water and enjoyed it until I looked back and our towels were gone. Well, actually, the towels weren't gone. We had just moved down the beach. The tide had slowly, over time, pushed us so we were 100 feet away from where we went into the water. The tide was imperceptibly, unnoticeably pushing us. Every culture, whether that's a national culture or family culture, church culture, city culture, Every culture has a tide in it. It's pushing you almost imperceptibly to go a certain way. It's not always overt, but there's subtle messages that you need to go this way, you need to go this way. And then if you're not focused on that's where I need to be, that's where my towels are, you look up and you go, whoa, where am I? Well, Josiah went against the tide of almost six decades before him. You know, I'm sure there are people who told him, you know you're on the wrong side of history? I mean, we're past this monotheistic, closed-minded, worship-by-the-book view of God. You know, yeah, Yahweh's good, we still worship Him, but we've learned. We've seen the benefit of Baal and Asherah. You know, there's wisdom outside of our tribe, isn't there? Come on, Josiah, are you so arrogant to think we're the only ones who got it all right? And yet Josiah goes against the tide. He goes against his family's recent history to return to the path God gave. And he did all this starting at a young age. What did he do from age 8 to 16? So that by age 16 he was seeking after God. Well, we're not told. But whatever it was, by age 16 he is seeking after God. Not being taken to where people seek after God, or not hearing or knowing people. Yeah, they seek after God. Josiah sought after God. Now, kids, I hope I always have your attention, but I was a kid once, and I could tell you 
all the panels in my church where I grew up, how many there were, and how many tiles were on the ceiling, and a lot of other things. Because sometimes the pastor seems to go on. But kids, if I get your attention, if you're eight years or older, please raise your hand. We might need to do some math facts out here. Alright, so eight years or older, you could become the king of Judah. Can you imagine that? You became the king. Oh, you can put your hands down. If you're 12 years or older, raise your hand. Oh, so got some young spud, prodigies back there. Oh, you can put your hands down. By age 12, you can read in Luke 12 that Jesus was sitting in the temple talking with the adults. Now, was this because Jesus was some child prodigy that he was above and beyond? I don't think so. I think rather it was Jesus came to realize what was important in life. You know, should we think that a 12-year-old should be able to listen in with adults and learn about God? I think so. I think it should not be abnormal for a 12-year-old to join the men's Bible study or join the women's Bible study or pray with them on Wednesday night. Did Jesus as a 12-year-old still like to goof around? I'm sure he did. Did he still do silly stuff? Probably did. But he also realized what's important, what's most important. Now, what I'm going to say next could be misunderstood, so please hear everything I'm going to say. But I'm always troubled when people say, no one in this church has anything in common with me or my children. Now, in just a couple months, there will be hundreds of thousands of people sitting next to complete strangers who have nothing in common with them except for their love of watching men in tights chase a piece of pig on a painted rectangle. They won't care if the person next to them is Republican or Democrat, black or white, rich or poor, young or old, all of that stuff. That goes by the wayside when they're here because we love this. And when we gather together, what is our greatest love? You know, if you look around this room, we're not a large group. And you might say, there's no one within five years of my age. No one is like me. However, may I challenge us? If we can look around this room and say, no one here has anything in common with me, then we're either missing the mark about what's most important in life or everyone in this room is. You know, most important thing I hope for you is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if that's the most important thing, then yes, we would love lots of things to be different. But the most important thing is what should unite us. Now, please don't mishear me. I understand it is nice to have people who are your age and stage of life. It's enjoyable to have both people who love God and are also your age and stage. And from time to time, I understand why there have been people in our church who say it's really going to be better for us if we have both of those and they feel like they need to join with other Christians. And even our children this week, two of them are going to camp with another church. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. My point, though, is, is there people, are there people in this room that though they look different, they care about some different things, that you are united with them in your love for the Savior, that you have the most important thing in your life is the same as what's most important in their life. And reflecting on people like Josiah and Jesus should cause us to raise the bar for our children. You're as a preteen or a teenager, please don't let people lower the bar for you. I know video games, electronics, they are way more pleasurable 
the many things that your parents probably want you to do. They're probably more enjoyable than reading your Bible or praying in the immediate moment. Yet eating candy is always way more enjoyable in the immediate time than eating vegetables and healthy food. And yet in the long run, the vegetables, the healthy food, are going to give you a more enjoyable life. Is that to say you should ever, never eat candy? No. Is that to say that kids, you're sinning if you play video games? No, not at all. Enjoy a video game. Enjoy these gifts that we've been given by God. But what is most important in your life? What is it that you are most excited about that? Excited about? And we see what Josiah is most excited about in the next section, because he is ambitious for God's glory. Verses 3 through 10. Josiah, ambitious for God's glory. And 2 Kings 22 is telling us that in Josiah's 18th year, most likely that's of his reign, so he'd now be 26 years old. In his 18th year, Josiah desires to see the house of God improved. So he sends his secretary, secretary of state or commerce or some kind of secretary, to the temple, to Hilkiah, the high priest. And he says, look, take the money that's given, and then you all distribute it to the various workers, the masons, the carpenters, the various people. Have them go buy supplies and then rebuild the temple. And then interestingly, sometime as they're cleaning up the temple, as they're renovating it, Hilkiah reports to Shaphan that he found the book of the law in the temple. Now this raises some interesting questions, though we don't necessarily have exact answers. We have some educated answers. Which book of the law? Was this Genesis through Deuteronomy or just one book? Well, Deuteronomy is often called the book of the law, and the response seems to match part of what we read in Deuteronomy 28 earlier, though it seems probably it was at least Deuteronomy, if not all five books. Well, how could this book have been lost? Well, do you think in Manasseh's 55 years of rebelling against the Lord, he really wanted the book of the law read? I bet he said, oh, that's a great uh, relic. Why don't you put that on the shelf over there? We'll save that for later. And it, there it collected dust. So I don't think it's all that surprising that he stowed it away for later because he didn't want to hear what it had to say. Well, Shaphan then takes the scroll, he reads it, he comes back to Josiah, but interestingly, what is the first thing Shaphan does? Well, we're told in verses 8, 9, and 10 that when he returns, the first thing he does is he tells Josiah all about the temple being restored. It seems like the book of the law, yeah, oh yeah, after I gave you all the reports, I forgot to mention, we also found this book, yeah, who cares? And yet this is what is most important. And this section is showing us that Josiah's heart for God was not merely just emotions for God. Josiah is ambitious for God's glory. So he uses his time, his money, his energy to honor God by restoring the temple. Kids, adults, what are you ambitious for? You may have heard a couple years ago of the man who wanted to be a YouTube star so he jumped from the Pennybacker Bridge in Austin into the Colorado River. Except as he landed, he fractured his skull and had to be rescued. He later commented, You might see it as jumping for views. I see it more. I don't settle for less. I will leave my mark on this planet. Well, he was leaving a mark, 
but not the type of mark you want to leave. And that's a sad commentary. Many people want to leave a mark about everyone. Look at me. Watch my video. See how great I am. See how crazy I am. And yet, they're wanting to be known for themselves. Your true joy in life is found when you are ambitious for God being known. That God is praised in and through our life. The things concerning God is what concerns us. Now, many people wrongly conclude something from what I'm saying. That is, okay, well, if you want to honor God, then you need to do so-called spiritual things. So you need to go home, you need to read your Bible, you need to pray, you must go be a missionary. And yet, if we want to serve God, we don't necessarily need to go do new things. We need to do them with a new mindset. Grant Hansen reminds us that serving God and serving others is often done in the mundane tasks and jobs that we have. He writes, even terrible jobs make us serve people. In fact, that's what you're being paid to do, serve people, and not just your bosses. This is obvious if you're a server at a restaurant, but it's true of practically every single job you can imagine. You're being paid to be a help to people. If you're stocking shelves at a grocery store, you're helping busy moms and dads gather the food they need for their families. If you're an accountant, you're helping people navigate difficult tax laws or making it possible for your company to meet payroll for people who are depending on an income. If you're flipping burgers, you're preparing someone's meal. Maybe a grandma, maybe a little kid. Whoever it is you're feeding, that someone is incredibly important to God. So often our menial jobs are vitally important works of mercy. Thus the best way for most of us to honor God is to do your best in whatever place God has already put you. So that's doing laundry, then sort it, put it in the laundry, switch it to the dryer, and fold it to the best of your ability for God's glory. If that's taking out the trash, then do it when you're supposed to, cheerfully, and without leaving things dropped all along the way. If it's relating to siblings, then be quick to hear, quick to forgive, slow to anger, and slow to speak. You see, again, many of us don't need to go somewhere else or take up some so-called spiritual task to honor God. We just need to go to the same places with a mindset that we're doing it for God. Oz Guinness says it very succinctly. He says, it is not that most Christians are not where they ought to be. It is that most Christians are not what they ought to be, where they are. As well... As we were pointing out, the best way, one of the best ways, I should say, to love God is to love people. Now, kids, again, if you're tempted over the summer to say, I'm so bored, there's nothing to do. There is a lot to do. Pray that God would open your eyes to see all the other people in this world who would love to have you help them. You'll volunteer at one of the many places around town that serves people. You could call a shut-in. You could write them a note. You could go visit them. You could consider the fact, everything I had today someone did for me. Maybe I could write them a thank you note. You could make someone food or offer to go to someone's house who can't do everything and help them out. You could look around whenever you're at a place and go, Who's the person who's always being left alone? Who's the one that everyone goes and does something and they kind of sit by themselves and then go over and sit by them? Be with them. You know, one of the biggest ways we can love God 
is to love his image that's in front of us and praying that God would give us eyes to see those who need his love. But this isn't absent of doing spiritual things. Yes, we don't need to go do spiritual things to love God, but we should do spiritual things. So kids, may I encourage you, when we sing, sing along. Sing as loud as you can, and your parents will let you. As we're singing, if you don't know the words to what they mean, ask your parents. Parents, hopefully when we finish, your first question is not, did you have a good time this morning? It's, what did you learn this morning? Or, when the pastor said this, did you understand that? Or, what do you think about that passage? How should that change our life? Some of you may remember Les Ball. He used to come here with his family. And he told me more than once, his favorite Sunday lunch was roast pastor. And he was mainly jesting. But his point was, what he liked to do Sunday at lunch was to talk to his kids about what the pastor said. Let's talk about, is it based on God's word? How should we respond? And I hope that's normal in your homes, that you are encouraging your children in godliness. You know, parents encourage your kids by having them memorize scripture, read from the Bible, read to them from the Bible, read other good books. And you might be thinking, but my kids are going to hate that. Well, most kids aren't too excited about green beans or broccoli either. But a good parent says, this is good for you, and I love you, and so let's do this. And adults, if this should be true of our kids, of our 12-year-olds, what about us? Is it weird when people start talking about theology? Oh, man, why are we doing this? Or is it normal and enjoyable to talk about God and His Word? To be passionate for God's glory. But Josiah here, he doesn't just hear the word from Shaphan, he responds. In our last section, we see he wept over losing God's favor, verses 11 through 20. So Shaphan reads the scroll, and when Josiah hears the words, he tears his clothes. In their culture, this was a sign of grief, of sorrow. And then he sends his servants to seek out the Lord on account of him, account of the people, on account of Judah, because of these words. That's interesting. He doesn't send them to Jeremiah, who we know from Jeremiah 1-2 has already been a prophet for five years. He doesn't send them to Zephaniah, who is also a prophet. Rather, the leaders go to Huldah, the prophetess. There are several prophetesses in the Old Testament. Miriam, Exodus 15-20, Deborah, Judges 4-4, Huldah here, and an unnamed prophetess in Isaiah 8-3. And all those are spoken positively. In Joel 2, 28, it says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Sons and daughters. And then in Acts 2, we see that that was fulfilled, at least partially. And so God was speaking through these women. And the fact that God spoke through these women doesn't in any way contradict the clear teaching that God desires for the leaders in the church to be men. God has created male and female differently in some respects, and he's given us some different roles and responsibilities. Yet, God has not made either inferior to the other or in relating to him. Women have valuable contributions, so do men. If you read Romans 16 or the end of many of Paul's other letters in the New Testament, you'll see the valuable role that women had in his ministry, as men had. The scripture shows us that both are true. Male and female are equal before God in status. And God has given us different roles. 
Both of those are true. But back to the main point, Huldah says to them that in the Lord's name, she says, God will bring calamity. He will bring judgment upon Judah based on the words from the law, probably Deuteronomy. And her words mirror the prophecy of judgment against Jeroboam, the first king of Israel, and against Ahab, the notorious king of Israel. This is not good company to be mixed with. And this judgment is coming not because of some obscure technicality, some little thing that, haha, I got them on that one. They never saw that coming. Rather, the most basic thing of them sacrificing to other gods, forsaking God. Thus his wrath is kindled, she says, and it won't be quenched. Yet though it won't be quenched, Josiah and the people in his time will be delivered from it because he softened his heart. He humbled himself before the Lord when he heard God's words. Since Josiah tore his clothes, since he wept, Josiah will be delivered. And as the leader of the nation, his people will be delivered from judgment for that time as well. Now consider for a second what Josiah had to believe to come to this conclusion. First, Josiah believes that God's word was in fact God's word. Josiah didn't say, well, did God really say that? 1 Thessalonians 2.13, it says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that you, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. God's sheep hear his voice. And when we hear him speak, we must respond. Second, Josiah believes that all of God's word is true and will come true. And Josiah doesn't say in response to this word, well, I mean, that's, that's one opinion. I mean, that's what Moses thought when he wrote it. Or, well, you know, I don't really like to think of God like that. So, you know, that doesn't matter. God's word was true. And it didn't matter Josiah's perspective on the matter. Third, Josiah believes that this word condemned him and his father's. He doesn't say, well, if we didn't have all those enemies attacking us, we would have obeyed God. Or, well, we would have obeyed God, but we had all these bad examples around us. Josiah heard God's word and knew that he stood condemned. Thus, since Josiah believes that, it is the only right response for him to weep, to dread, and to seek God. And that might seem kind of strange. If someone does something illegal and the police are coming for them, they don't normally say, hey, I'm going to go seek the police out. They're going to punish me. They flee from them. And yet Josiah runs to God. Why would he run to the very one who says he'll punish him? Because God not only tells of judgment, he also tells of mercy. In Deuteronomy, it also says, Deuteronomy 4, 29-31, that after judgment, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul, when you are in tribulation, and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. So Josiah trusted all of God's word. And so he flees to the very one who he knows he has sinned against. Now, many often want to always jump to the end of this amazing truth, that God is merciful and forgives. And we should delight in that amazing truth 
but we should also realize the judgment we deserve. You know, every time in Scripture, when someone comes face to face with God, or they interact with an angel or something like that, they fall on their face, often declaring their sinfulness. Let's look at one of those. Turn to Revelation chapter 1, and we'll look at verses 12 through 18. So the Revelation to John, we'll look at Revelation 1, 12 through 18. Revelation 1, beginning in verse 12. Then I, John, turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. Now this is the Apostle John who walked and talked with Jesus. This is the Apostle John who had seen the transfiguration. He knew what Jesus was like in all his glory. And yet, before he is brought to glory, when he sees the resurrected Jesus again in his glory, what does he do? He falls on his face. He realizes he is unworthy because he's come before the holy God as a guilty sinner. If you back up from what scripture says and think about what our culture says about such things, you realize how radical the Bible's view of guilt in our responses. One psychologist, Dr. Grohol, writes about guilt. We all make mistakes. And many of us go down on a path in our lives that make us feel guilty later on when we realize our mistake. The key, however, is to realize the mistake and accept that you're only human. Don't engage in days of self-blame or battering your self-esteem because you should have known, should have acted differently, or should have been an ideal person. You're not, and neither am I. That's just life. Ah, don't worry about your sin. Just accept you're human. You know, here... Dr. Grohall is merely affirming what's popularly believed. That what we need to do is just tell ourselves good things about ourselves. That we need inspiration. It's unhealthy to be sorrowful or feel guilty. And yet, those actions are the very thing that God said is why he was forgiving Josiah. God was forgiving Josiah because he wept over his sin. Let me get at this by asking a question. What is Christianity about? Or let me ask it a different way. What do you hope to find or leave when you come here on a Sunday morning? You know, many, maybe not in here, but many ultimately want God to be their therapist. I want to leave feeling better. I want to feel supported. I want to feel I'm on the right search for meaning, hope, and purpose. And yet Jesus didn't come to be our therapist. He came to be our Lord. Christianity is about declaring the lordship of Christ. And that's what are some of Jesus' final words on earth? All authority on heaven and earth, in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, 
Go and make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It is Jesus' authority. It's His Lordship that we gather to worship and proclaim. And now should that lead us to feel better? Yes. But we first have to go through recognizing our punishment that we deserve. That's why one of the pinnacles of spirituality in the Bible is humility. Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Or Isaiah 61, 2. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Now, please don't misunderstand. The point is not that we should always walk around feeling convicted, moaning that we're horrible sinners. Yes, we were horrible sinners. But now, due to Christ, we are children of the living God. And yet the cancer patient can't have joy of being a cancer survivor until they've had the cancer cut out, until they go through the pain of having it removed. There must be awareness of our sinful condition and that we deserve it. And in this, we can often get confused. I'm not just saying feel sad and horrible or even despair because many people have a worldly sorrow, 2 Corinthians talks about. Mark Twain has such an experience. In his autobiography, Mark Twain, the author, tells of his repentances when he was a child. Often there would be some tragedy in his hometown. And then he writes, Those were awful nights, nights of despair, nights charged with the bitterness of death. After each tragedy, I recognized the warning from the pastor and repented. Repented and begged. Begged like a coward. Begged like a dog. It is John Miller notes, Twain's self-reflections were just that, self-reflections. He was only sorry for himself, not sorry for sin against a holy and loving God. Accordingly, his confession of depravity was motivated by self-pity. So two people could look the same, but false humility is concerned about, oh, only the punishment I'm going to receive, whereas true humility is concerned that I've sinned against God. False humility often says, well, what can I do now? How can I make this better? Whereas true humility says, God, you'll have to save me because I have no hope in myself. I realize there's nothing I can do. You consider what we just read, Revelation 1. How could this person, how could Jesus tell John not to fear? Why does he have the keys to death and Hades? Well, because he tells us he died and rose again. He took the punishment for John's sins. And since John humbly trusted in Jesus by faith, he has given Jesus perfect life and thus does not need to fear in God's presence, but can come in joy. Kids, if I can get your attention one last time, if, I haven't, if I've lost it, how do you respond when you know you've done something wrong or you've messed up? I was a kid once, back with the dinosaurs, camp counselor, worked with kids a lot, and I've seen various many responses. Some people do this, I'm so stupid, I'm dumb, I hate myself, I'm worthless. They see that they've done wrong and all they do is they lay words of emotional blame on themselves. Others, sadly, will not lay emotional blame, they'll lay physical blame. They'll 
beat themselves. Some will even do things like cut themselves. And the Bible is showing us so that the issue is not that we're stupid or dumb. The issue is that we're sinners. And yet there's an amazing truth that Jesus is a friend of sinners. That all you have to do is humble yourself and say, God, I have sinned against you. No excuses, no trying to explain it away. I have sinned and I have no hope except that you save me. Completely humble yourself before him. You know, the Bible tells us that Jesus is eager. He's willing. He's desirous to save sinners. We should feel sad. We should feel guilty when we sin. But we should realize that that punishment that we feel that we deserve, it is right. The wages of sin is death, but it has been put on Jesus. And so you shouldn't mentally or sadly, physically beat yourself up. You should look to the one who took that for you. And may I press even the adults, when we do that, when we go around after our sin and we just lay into ourselves, we just emotionally, we just beat ourselves up. We may not say this, but what we're doing is we're saying, Jesus, I know you paid for my sins, but you actually didn't do enough. I need a little more punishment. I need to take more punishment than you could take on the cross because I have to take the lashes. I got to emotionally really hit myself, have it. And yet Jesus paid it all. So we can come in the confidence that like Josiah, look, yes, the book tells of punishment, but it also tells of mercy if I humble myself and look to him. And when should I do that? Well, you don't have to wait till you're an adult. From a young age, you can say, I'm a sinner and Christ died for me. I have no hope in myself. Yes, I deserve punishment, but he took it for me and it's him that I trust. Let's go to him in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you for this example in Josiah. Oh Lord, he did not have a great home and yet we see that you work in many places. Thank you for showing us his humility. Lord, may we have that. May we see that there is no hope in us, but there is infinite hope, forgiveness, and joy in your Son. Lord, we're all prone to want to beat ourselves up. May we turn to the one who took that for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.